you know, I think this movie is just about everything that's right and everything that's wrong with modern American comedies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> and this movie is... <laughs> God, that's a terrible way to open it. I'm so sorry. This podcast is. <laughs> well, the movie is Talladega Nights, presented by Madness and Movies, uh, a Tampa original production. I am your host, Andy Collings. <laughs> and I am your co-host, Emily Cutler. And today, we are examining Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Wait, no, we're examining madness, the representations and portrayals of madness through Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Mm-hmm. I'm your host, Andy Collings. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm your co-host, Emily Cutler. And this is the podcast Madness and Movies, where we're talking about Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Are we keeping both introductions in the podcast? Of course. <laughs> Way to break my fourth wall. That's not, I don't know. <laughs> Do you want to just dive in? Yeah. We're yeah. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting one because uh, as we quickly found out, we there is um the experience of taking notes on this movie was very, very different than taking notes on, uh, for instance, Groundhog Day. And I, I, uh, I don't know. I think that says a lot about sort of the state of play in comedy in, I don't know, post 9-11, give or take. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just that, I don't know if it's post 9-11. It's pretty much... Uh, Shoot, what's his name? The producer, he did 40-Year-Old Virgin, and he produced this, and he's... Not Judd Apatow. It's Judd Apatow. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, no, it's basically Judd Apatow's influence. Okay. Um, that, like, yeah. Uh, Groundhog Day was very... I don't know. And I know this is kind of apples to oranges, because Groundhog Day is, like, a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, if felt much more cohesive and coherent and I guess dense is really what I'm going for. Like there was, there was more going on and this movie very much felt like the director said, okay, this scene, we're in the hospital and you're going to stab Ricky Bobby with a knife action. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So when we first were talking about what movies to do and we were just kind of bouncing around ideas, we were mm-hmm. talking about kind of all these like 80s comedies or 90s comedies. Yeah. And we were like, yeah, 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 like these are great. These have a lot of madness in them. This one means something. That one was trying to make a commentary on blah, blah, blah and all this. Yeah. And like then we were talking about more like contemporary films and we were like, huh, there's not really as much madness in it. And then I kind of jokingly slash half-jokingly theorized that the reason that romantic comedies or comedies in general have gone downhill is because there's no more mad characters. And I kind of wonder if I'm right. Hmm. Or at least there's no... Yeah, you're going to have to explain that. At least there's no 
characters. Like, to some extent, yeah. to be a character, to be unique and eccentric and worth, like, getting invested in is to be mad. Like, I, I've always thought that, like, at its very essence, like, madness is what makes us human. It's just our individuality, our uniqueness, whatever it is that, like, sets us apart. And I feel like comedies, yeah, like, I, I do feel like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day was pretty, like, mad, or he, like, he had this, he, he was very distinctive, and because of that, you really related to him. We, we relate to people's particularities, but now I feel like a lot of characters are just kind of bland and not super, I, I don't know, just kind of more generic. Flat? Flatter, yeah, I think is the word. Yeah, or it's just maybe the movies themselves aren't even as, mm -hmm. like, character-driven. It's just like, this is going to happen, and then this. And, like, it's not about the characters Yeah, much. yeah. So, it's, madness is absent, individuality is absent. It's more just like, here's a fun, like, action scene that's going to be funny because it's slapstick and... Yeah. LOL. I do think, uh, I don't know, I'm going to... I don't entirely... I'm kind of, I'm making this up off the cuff, so just bear with me, and this might not hold up at all. Uh -huh. um, but so this movie was produced by Judd Apatow, and so it has the same kind of feel and the same kind of you know the same kind of crew, same kind of same kind of cast, same you know it's the gangs all here kind of feel. But it was directed by Adam McKay, who also did uh, Anchorman, also with Will Ferrell, and mm -hmm. Step Brothers, also with Will Ferrell. Um, but these films feel a little more like it feels almost like he's like, yeah, the characters are still flat and the comedy style is about the same, but it feels like Adam McKay is at least like messing around with like the, the form of the film mm -hmm. and sort of like feels like he's experimenting with, yeah, the structure of it a little bit more. And so even, yeah, it's not character-driven, and the comedy's still kind of stupid, and it's the 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 joke density is probably higher, but the, uh, I don't know, fun density <laughs> is lower. Like, I'm not excusing it, but I'm so much as saying that, like, I still feel like Adam McKay is at least trying to do something with it. I don't entirely know what that something is, but I feel like he's at least... Try, he's he's working towards something or he's exploring something and I don't know what it is. Hmm. Uh, and I think movies that Judd Apatow directs especially are e even more, even worse, even more mm -hmm. vapid mm -hmm. just because they, they don't have even that that layer. Like, it's just, it's flat characters in dumb situations improving around each other and then they call it a plot and mail it off, you know? <laughs> There was definitely some madness in this film, um, yeah. which we'll talk about, but I just feel like it was kind of surface level, like for the jokes. It wasn't like it, it yeah. could have potentially gone deeper, which I think would have made it like funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, I, I'll, I'll agree with that. I think uh, Will Ferrell, I think Ricky Bobby, I guess is the character name. We'll go, uh, I'll probably switch between those two back and forth. Um, Ricky Bobby is set up as this almost, like, tragic, traumatized figure, right? And then they never really deliver on that. He doesn't act like one unless it's convenient for the plot. 
Yeah. Should we summarize the film? We should summarize. We should slow down and explain this. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to do it? Should I? You can. Okay. Uh, Ricky Bobby is... It, so it starts off with sort of, you know, the, the life and times of Ricky Bobby, right? Like, he's born... Uh, he's born in the back of a car going 150 miles an hour down some back back alley, back road, back country road, I guess. Um, his dad abandons him and he grows up his whole life. The only thing he knows is that his dad's a race car driver. And so he just, he spends his whole childhood like dreaming of being a race car driver. And then one day his dad shows up at Ricky Bobby's uh, whatever middle school career day, right? Just just walks in like, hey, I'm uh, I'm here for Ricky Bobby. You know, I'm a what's he say? I'm a semi-professional race car driver and an amateur tattoo artist. And all the kids in the classroom gasp and ooh, and he just comes in and he's like a god. He's just the coolest thing to ever walk on, you know, on two feet. And he just comes in and he just lays, just smothers the whole room in like charisma and swagger. And and he just drops the, drops the line. If you're not first, you're last, Ricky. And then he drives off into the sunset as all the kids cheer. Like that was the coolest dad ever. Woo yeah. Um, and that's all that Ricky knows about his dad. And he like, and I think he like he spends the whole rest of the movie like feeling like like the only thing he wants to do is drive really fast. Is he he has to be he has to be number one and he has to drive really fast because. I think it's implied or they're trying to set up, right? That like that's the only way that he thinks his dad will come back. His his dad will come back to him if he wins, if he's fast, if he's number one. That that's that's the only place that he can find any value. That's the only that's the only way he values himself because that's the only way that anyone's ever valued him and that's the coolest fucking thing. That that's like a, his his god hero just steps into his life and gives him one mission and disappears off into the ether like I'll come back someday Ricky and so it, that's his whole life mission is just to win and to go fast and he'll burn everything for that he'll he'll cross his friends he'll like he'll sell everything so that he can get his father back right but they don't play it for that they don't there's no moments there's no moments of like bittersweet or like where he has to explain that or have like a come come to terms with that or whatever like it's just so he drives he drives fast and he and he screws everyone and he blows up a bunch of stuff and everyone's like oh my gosh ricky bobby's a madman and then a french guy um (laughs) french guy comes in and challenges him and is faster than them and ricky can't handle that and ricky like flames out and has like a He's like a psychotic break, I yeah. guess, on the racetrack. Like he, he thinks he's on fire and he's running around screaming in his underwear and he thinks he's on fire, but he's not on fire. And then he goes into a coma and then he's like, thinks he's paralyzed from the waist down. And then he has to like, and so he spends the whole rest of the movie like building up his courage again and learning to, you know, learning what really matters in life. And um, And his dad comes back and his dad trains him. And then they, then he goes and he challenges the French guy, and he wins. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then he kisses the French guy, and it's super awkward. And <laughs> <laughs> the French guy is Sasha Baron Cohen. Yes, yes, that's important yes. to point out. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
And this was in 2006, where... Yeah, give or take. Being gay was still, like, really, really funny and in the movies. And yeah. And so, like, oh the my whole God, big, he's... giant joke is that Sasha Baron Cohen is... is so, so gay, gay, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, the whole movie is, like, this kind of ode to toxic masculinity. Yes, yes. Like... And and I think it's like aware of that a little bit, but like still very much like glorifying toxic masculinity. Yeah, and then kind of turning and wink to the camera, going, yeah. "Now don't really do that." <laughs> yeah, just like look how funny this is. Look how funny toxic masculinity is. Yeah, and it's kind yeah, of yeah. awesome too. And like, I mean, that was pretty sweet. <laughs> but like, don't try this at home. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Um, yeah, just, like, I feel like the funny, I, Sasha Baron Cohen is, like, supposed to be, like, so funny, and it's because he's, like, gay and French and, like, kind of effeminate. He's, like, he's reading The Stranger on the race car track. <laughs> oh, and, and Ricky Bobby, the, 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 where Ricky Bobby crosses him, right, and, like, oh, this gets personal now, is he's, he's driving, he's driving NASCAR, right, he's going 100 miles an hour or whatever, while sipping coffee through his helmet, and Ricky Bobby like bumps him, and he gets a little bit of coffee on his on his perfectly clean uniform. He's like, "You have spilled my macchiato." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's very God. early two thousands, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh my God. Uh. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I get. It. Again, things that they, like, almost touch on, but, like, never really bother to dig into, like, intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. Like, Ricky's dad left him, so then he's, you know, whatever, you know, screwed up in all his, his ways. He's, he's traumatized. And then he has two kids, Walker and Texas Ranger, named after the uh, classic Chuck Norris show. But I'm um, And even they, you know, and he, he's telling them, like, you know, winners get to do what they want. And there's like, yeah, yeah. And they're all like, yeah. And it's like, oh, wow. This is how intergenerational trauma happens. This is, this is how these things, this is how this gets passed down. Mm -hmm. Is that like, that's, you know, that's the only thing that anyone valued in him. And then that's the only value is that he passes down to his kids. And I, and they just, yeah. And that, that dinner scene was just such a, fantastic like illustration of that mm -hmm. right where they have uh the you know with the, the 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 burger king and the domino's pizza and the thank you baby jesus and, <laughs> and all that yeah he basically tells his kids like you can say whatever you want you can curse at the table you can you can do you can call anybody any names you want you know, you can hit, you can throw your grandfather's war medals out the yes. window as long as you're a winner. It doesn't yeah, matter. Because that's, that's what matters. That's the mm -hmm. only thing that matters. Yeah. I will say that, like, rang really true for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say more to that. Yeah, just um, growing up, like, in the ruling class or upper middle class. <laughs> the ruling class. <laughs> I'm a Marxist. God, it, it sounds so, like... I don't know Orwellian when you say it like that. I know that's why I say it like okay, that. Okay, okay. So you're <laughs> okay. Just as long as okay. Well, I switched because I, I don't know, and I'm like still like confused over what rhetoric to use, and I'm I'm a little bit confused still. I'm I'm not. 
I'm new to Marxism. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure what the ruling class exactly is. Um, I very much, like, when I was growing up, I was very much told, like, oh, like, this isn't, like, the ruling class, or this isn't, like, the upper class. Like, we're upper middle class, and that's not the same thing. It's not like we're the 1%. We're, like, the top one. We're, like, we're the, the 5%. Or, like, the 10. <laughs> yeah, like, whatever. Like, it would always be, like, oh, like, we don't have that much privilege. I mean, look at the people who work on Wall Street or, yeah. like look at celebrities like we're not like that like you need to like calm down about all this privilege stuff um so yeah i don't know so i kind of like calling it the ruling class because it very much feels like that was like ignored and i didn't get to think about myself in terms of having this mentality imposed on me that i didn't <laughs> volunteer to have imposed on me um and I, I think of the ruling class as pretty, um, I'm, I'm also, I have an interest in cultic studies, and I think of the ruling class as fairly, like, cultish in terms of the values that get imposed on people. Um, so I like giving it that language, kind of, that it, it is, it, it rules over you, um, and it ruled over me as a kid. And yes, the value system very much was, like, as long as you maintain this class status, hardly anything else matters and like the rest will sort itself out yeah yeah and like you can be jewish you can be mad you can be all of these things you can even be ugly maybe like you can even like not wear makeup sometimes or whatever if you maintain this class status like if you have this like prestige if you get good grades if you get a good job if you get a career that like pays a certain amount or that like makes you look good or that ha has a certain amount of recognition then like you will get a free pass on all this other stuff that society devalues because you will still be valuable um and like yeah I, I very much think that's that's from like intergenerational trauma and um like that's been passed down through generations in my family and I imagine a lot of other families a lot of other Jewish families probably too where like you, I think there is this Jewish narrative of like um, being a part of the ruling class or whatever in order to sort of um, <laughs> not get genocided. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I think in order to like yeah, and not get like not be exiled from like countries or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I think there's this like intergenerational. Um, trauma that yeah um, an intergenerational narrative of like you you can do whatever you want maybe not whatever you want but you can you can survive you will be able to survive so long as you like have a skill set that's monetarily valuable for society um, and that's monetarily like valuable for the family and whatever um, and that was something that was very much imposed on me and very much drove me mad so I did relate to his character in the sense of, like, being driven mad by that ideology. Yeah, But I also yeah, yeah. don't think the movie really, like, nah, meant they to... Don't want they didn't <laughs> want, like, you as the audience to go down that road. So Nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they, they have one neat little scene where they, they, they say that very nicely, and then they never speak of it again. Yeah. <laughs> Although, like, when he goes mad, when he's running around in his underwear hallucinating yeah. fire, I think, like one person is like wow this really shows the pressure these race car drivers are under and it's supposed yeah. to be like kind of funny but i mean it does it's, it's true it, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah 
I don't know. I think it's, but I, I think that that was like an important point that like everyone like in the movie like acknowledges the trauma, but then like I guess almost like doesn't respect it is mm-hmm. the best language I can find. That, that people are like, man, this really shows what kind of pressure these drivers are under, and that's like the that's like the extent of yeah. their like noticing or caring. They're like, oh, of course, it must be very hard, and I'm sure he's very traumatized. So, <laughs> right, like when Ricky, when he's, uh, I don't know, when he's in a coma, everyone's just like, wake up, dumbass. And then when he's like, he's like freaked out, right? Like he, he like, he thinks he's crippled. He thinks he can't walk, right? Like it's this whole like psychosomatic, like he's, he, oh, he just can't handle that he lost. And so they slap him around and he stabs himself and then he's, he's over it. Hooray. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, I think the other thing is, like, I think some of the characters, like, his mom and, like, Susan, his assistant, who mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. starts to date, um, like, they recognize that, like, oh, like, you think you have to do this because of because of the conditional love you've been given or whatever. Mm-hmm. You think yeah. you have yes. to do this because everyone wants you to, but no, like, you need to learn to do this for you, <laughs> like, they're yeah, not... Yeah, not, not, you can move away, you can do anything, find what you love, Ricky Bobby, it's, you need to do this, but just for different reasons. Yeah, yeah, it's, and I feel like that's such a narrative of our society, too, is, like, it's, like, oh, like, do what you love, but it still needs to make money, like, <laughs> yes, do yes. what you love as long as you're, like, still, like, making money and consuming things and like I don't know and and it, there's also this narrative of like yeah like hyper focus on like self-care and like don't do things Make sure for, you're eating healthy. <laughs> yeah. Don't do things for other people like take care of yourself but taking care of yourself better not mean like not working or not consuming or or being the crack dealer but like the friendly crack dealer (laughs) yeah he says at one point he's like i'm gonna become a friendly crack dealer and stuff not like one of those mean ones you know just like hey man how's your day right (laughs) like what do you yeah you want (laughs) you want some crack man (laughs) yeah he says he's thinking about doing that instead of being a race car driver and and that gets him a stern talking to yeah susan's like no you can't do that you have to drive race cars. And, and she, like, ties it into masculinity. She's like, that's what being a man means is when you do something for you and you take what's given to you. You take what's yours. <laughs> so, and that, that, like, totally mirrors society, I feel like. It's, like, all this stuff around, like, yeah, like, you don't want to do things for other people. You don't want to participate in this system. Like... Like, all these, all this systemic oppression got you down. Like, you need to take care of yourself. You need to, like, prioritize yourself by buying our product, yeah. by eating healthy. Do not, it, you, if taking care of yourself means, like, taking opioids or, like, doing drugs or, like, I don't know, like, just, like, being super lazy and, like, not working or not consuming, like, that's really bad still. And, like, you need to be locked up. But, like, as long as you're taking care of yourself by, like, buying our wellness products or, like, you know, participating in the mental health system or downloading apps from Silicon Valley that are designed to help you with your mental health, like, then taking yoga classes or joining, you know, One Taste or gyms or whatever it is, like, yeah, you're, yeah, you're great. Like it's that's great. You're prioritizing yourself, but like it's got to be in that right way that like fits yeah. within the capitalist framework. 
Because I, I think the, I don't know, the root of all that is the idea that it's, one, it's on you to be, I don't know, whatever, well. Mm-hmm. And two, that it's not that hard and everyone does it and why aren't you just trying harder? Yeah. And I think that's that's sort of like embodied in the, the, the cougar, right? That is... <laughs> His dad is like, yeah, you got that fear. You're real afraid of uh, driving. You need to master that fear. And he's like, yeah, I just crashed my car and thought I was on fire and was in a coma for two weeks, right? And his dad's like, get in the car, son, right? And there's a cougar in the car. And he's like, whoa, whoa, cougar. And it's like, you got to master that fear. You just got to get in there with that cougar. You just got to get in there and you just got to do it. And you got to master that fear, right? Like it's like it's that easy, like just. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. All you gotta do is get in the car with the cougar. Right. And now I, you, now you're, now you're good again. You're all good. It's Go like <laughs> such a narrative too of like overcoming and like overcoming disability. You know that he he's not incapacitated. He doesn't have to quit just because he went mad. Like he can do it, and like he can recover. And yeah. Yeah. He can drive with the cougar in his car. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah, yeah. And then that, that cougar is, like, his spirit animal for the rest of the movie. Ah, I overcame this. Yeah. God. Yeah, I feel like that, like, sums up capitalism. Like, capitalism is so, like, fucked up and so, like, ableist and sanist that it will literally be, like, you need to learn how to drive with a cougar in your car in order to perform to our standards of able-bodiedness and sane-mindedness and like yeah like (laughs) it will literally not stop imposing those standards when there is a cougar in your car that you need to drive around with yeah yeah yep And he, I mean, they, they show him get mauled, right? Like, he gets, like, torn apart mm-hmm. by this cougar, mm-hmm. and he just, okay, well, try again. <laughs> right? God, yeah. So, oh, my God. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. Um, and then at the end of the movie, he, like, comes to, like, appreciate his dad or something, or his dad, like, comes back into his life, and it's all, like, forgiving and everything. And right? It's, like, pretty horrifying. <laughs> Like, he learned to live without his dad, so now he has earned the right to live with him, I guess, yeah. is, the, is the message. Yeah. Or the, the, like, now that he's become a... And I mean, that was sort of... I think this was good, right? Was that sort of he... I guess one of the arcs of the movie was that he sort of slowly replaced the conditional love of, like... If I'm fast, then people like me, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, the, the screaming crowds and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sort of slowly, like, replaced that with unconditional love. They really? sort of, Well, I mean, that's what they were trying to say, mm-hmm. right? That he, like, reconnected with his family, and he found a girl that wasn't just a set of boobs to him, although apparently she did have very nice <laughs> boobs. And did you grow those yourself? Are those all natural? <laughs> Yeah. But, but, I mean, I think that's what they were trying to say, right? Like, that that was his speech at the end was like, was like, I didn't win that, you know, I didn't win that race for you, Dad. I won that race because I just wanted to do it. Because I knew that even if I failed, that my, my mom and my kids and my whatever girlfriend would be there even if I lost and that, that everything would be okay. Yeah. Like, that's what... I, that's what he says. That's what he says. 
I just feel like the movie doesn't do a great job of like showing that. Like, oh God, I, no! Like that that that's that's an important like asterisk on everything here is like we're we're trying so hard, <laughs> we're like really reaching, and it's like all of this stuff like the asterisk is like yeah, kind of, but the movie didn't really show that. Yeah, like his girlfriend Susan was like, yeah, not. She she like was really pushing him into like yeah be, like going back and being a race car driver and like so was his mom she was he like becomes like a pizza delivery guy at one point and she's like you can't do that you need to you're a re- you need to be yeah. a real man you're you're grown you're a grown ass man and you're delivering pizzas on a bicycle yeah not okay and yeah so it did not feel like unconditional love to me no and then yeah I just in general I really really dislike this narrative of like you have to learn to do things not for your parents like that's such a like victim blaming like fucked up thing like if you are a person who decides to like force a child into existence like (laughs) hi I'm an antinatalist If you are a person that decides to, like... I mean, I don't know. I'm not, like, a full-on antinatalist. Like, if you have a kid, I'm not going to, like... I don't think you're, like, a Scorn and shame. Yeah, I don't think you're a horrible person. But I do think this. I do think that if you decide to force a child into existence... And you are. If you were having a kid, you are, like... That person is not consenting to being alive. Um, And so if you were, like, deciding to make this decision that someone is going to be alive without their consent like we are human beings we need the approval of other human beings um the two human beings or yeah hopefully two or more or whatever um one or two human beings that are like closest to us in our lives like for the first like few years that's all we know is our parents and Mm -hmm. Like, so that is, like, you, it is human to, like, want approval from your parents and to want an attachment with your parents. Yeah. And I think it's, like, a really fucked up thing that, like, I feel like a lot of film and television shows put the burden on, like, the character to be like, oh, like, they overcame their need for their parents' approval. (laughs) And even though their parent never gave them approval, they, like, understood that it was okay. Like... I don't know, that just feels so, um, so victim blaming and so, like, gaslighting and yeah. Stockholm y. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, it's weird. Like, I can understand, I, I think, I think the entire thing is whose, whose narrative is it, right? Like, if it's, if it's the kid's narrative going, like, you know, saying, like, you know what, or I mean, yeah, saying, like, you know what, I, I, I understand that I'm never gonna get this and I have to survive somehow and so this is this is how I do it mm-hmm. versus someone else tell you know like like when someone's making a movie this kind of feels it, it is more like pushing that or it's what am I trying to say yeah that it's um do you know what I'm trying to say at all <laughs> It's weird for the movie to be pushing that. It's weird for filmmakers yeah. to be pushing that. That it's that's that's a perfectly acceptable decision and choice and necessity in an individual's life or that's, you know, however you however you deal with your mm-hmm. trauma or with your parents or your family system, whatever. You know, you do what you gotta do, man. Um, yeah. 
I think though we're not looking at what's missing and we're not looking at the fact that it's never, almost never shown in film or television that someone like remains angry at their family and like maintains righteous anger and uses that to, you know, um, speak out against their family system. Like the narrative is almost always that they come to appreciate who their parents are and they come to not need their approval and be this ideal of independence. And it's, it's not about, um, yeah, like, I don't know. We don't get to see victimhood. It's not like a form of victimhood. It's, it's a form of like learning and growing and something that you need to overcome. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. God. I wish you had seen Jessica Jones, uh, season two. Hmm. I really wish. And I don't want to spoil it for all of our listeners that may or may not care or watch or whatever, but just, it is so all of this. It is all of this told in such a fantastic way. That's awesome. Um, It ends really kind of on a weird, ambiguous note, and I'm so curious where you would think, what you would think of the ending. Hmm. Um, But you haven't seen it. And it's too scary. Yeah. I saw, like, one episode, and I couldn't... It's, oh, it's yeah, really it's... scary. It's a dark, freaky-ass show. Yeah. And um. very, yeah, very traumatic and, like, heavy emotional, dark. Everybody's sad and traumatized and... See, I'm, like, okay with emotional and dark and everyone dying. Like, that's great. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm, like, pretty desensitized, honestly. Yeah. But for some reason, like, I think, like, creepy violence, like, creepy jump mm-hmm. out violence, I don't know what it is, but for some reason that scares me. Like, so I watch Grey's Anatomy. Yes. And I know that's, like, a soap opera more, but I'm, like, hooked on that. And, like, <laughs> a lot of people die on that, and it's, like, really sad, and I, like, cry almost every episode. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Or, like, 13 Reasons Why. That might be a better example. I, like, I love 13 Reasons Why, and that's about suicide and, like, teen rape and, like, all these horrible things, horrific bullying, mm-hmm. um, like, violent. And yet, like, I don't know. Like, I'm totally fine with that. Like, it, I mean, I'm like, it's, it's scary. It affects me. It makes me really sad. I'll, like, cry. But it's not... Um, it doesn't, like, keep me up at night or, like, give me nightmares. I don't feel like I, like, can't turn the lights off or I don't feel like I have to check behind the shower curtain to, like, make sure someone's not hiding there. But, like, Jessica Jones yeah. or we we tried to watch Assassination Nation oh my last God. night and had to leave the theater. Like, those oh types of things make me feel like I cannot, like, pee with the door closed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Try and leave all the lights on at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know why that is or why that difference is there, but yeah, how my brain works, and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, I don't know because I think I, I I would guess mm-hmm. I would guess that if that in a show like Grey's Anatomy, for example, it's sort of I don't know. There's kind of like a it's all narratively like there's a reason and it sort of comes from somewhere and has an arc, right? And it's mm-hmm. like oh. Oh no, he got what was coming to him. Karma caught up eventually. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. And the clear corollary to that is like 
well, as long as I stay on Karma's good side, then I'm fine. No, no. that's not necessarily a great. Like, there's a lot of characters who die who are like really good characters mm. that you really like, and they're really yeah. There's Does, okay. There's a lot of really sad stuff. Is it maybe a difference between like something that fits the narrative and like has some kind of meaning versus just r- meaningless the chaos of the universe just like you could just it could all be over anytime you never know when you're getting off the ride kind of sense? Maybe. I don't know. I think maybe it's the degree of violence or like mm-hmm. the deg- the like brutality. Like I think Grey's a lot of times you see, like, the aftermath mm, Yeah, you violence. see, yeah, someone rolls into the hospital with their, whatever, eyeballs hanging out of their face. Yeah, but you're <laughs> not there, like, in the moment with a character about to get shot who, like, is... Because, you know, in, like, mm, horror movies or, like, mm, Jessica mm. Jones, I feel like they're always, like, hiding behind furniture and, like, riding on elevators and then, and, like in looking around and someone pops out of nowhere. Yeah, it's all it's very like para- it's a very paranoid show. Yeah, it like makes you the and I think horror movies in general, yeah, they create this like paranoia. That's what it feels like for me like for the next few days too. Like I'll just be like someone hiding somewhere that's going to pop out and kill me. Like Clockwork Orange too. Like mm-hmm. all the time after watching that, like I can't like open doors without I mean I still can in general without thinking like some like if someone knocks on my door I can't like open it without thinking that someone's gonna like kill me so yeah I don't know I think that yeah there's like a paranoia versus where it's just like really sad and tragic deaths like you're not really seeing that as much it's more just like really depressing yeah I don't know but yeah we are so off the rails (laughs) um do you have more notes? Because I'm, I got everything out of my system. I'm. Um, I just wanted to say that there was something in the movie that I really did enjoy, um, and that okay. was when Ricky Bobby is the main character is running around naked or in his underwear, and he's like, "There's fire on me! Get this fire off me! I'm gonna die!" And uh-huh. like, panicking and like, there is no fire on him. Um. And then his best friend mm-hmm. in the film, um, who's played by John C. Riley, yes. is like, yes. he's like running over to help and he's like, oh my God, I hope this invisible fire doesn't like consume him. I, I hope, I hope he doesn't get burnt alive by this invisible fire. Important and, note, zero sarcasm in yeah, his voice. Yeah. He is 100% just as freaked out as Ricky Bobby. Yeah. He's very scared. And then the, like, announcer, the, like, sports commentators are like, well, and there, his, there goes Ricky Bobby's friend trying to help him put out this non-existent fire. Well, that is a teammate. And I was like, yeah, mad I, pride. Yeah. <laughs> and again, the, the sports announcers, not sarcastic either. They're very much, they're like, that's a real teammate yeah. right there. <laughs> Like, it's it's just perfect. It's just so perfect. It's a good all-around Mad Pride moment, and I really feel like that example, that clip should just be, like, taken out and used <laughs> as an example yes. of what Mad Pride could look yes. like, what, like, mad mutual support could look like, just, like, not questioning somebody, like, just believing people, you know? Yeah. Like... <laughs> 
<laughs> you just go with it. It's real to them, and it's it's real enough to them, and you. you and that's what matters. Yeah, and I, I mean to go on a deeper letter level, like it's, they're you know it's probably real in like a metaphorical sense that there's fire or whatever you know talking about psychosis now like that's I, I think that's almost always like real in like a metaphorical sense there's some like family dynamic or some like form of systemic oppression that's like impacting someone and so rather than invalidating someone by trying to be like oh that fire is not real it's just like yeah like life is really scary like this is really fucked up like tell me about it and yeah yeah like yeah. that is what a friend does that's what a teammate does and yeah um no cbt no behaviorizing <laughs> <laughs> No telling someone that it's all in their head. No, like, gaslighting. Just like, yep, I believe you. Let's figure out how to put this fire out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Okay, so you guys so. should all suggest movies to us because we need some better movies. <laughs> we have a list of... We just picked a bad okay, one off the that's list. True, that's true. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't recommend them. And in fact, you should all... Anyone listening to this right now should listen wait anyone that is listening to this right now <laughs> bear with me should go to by the time this podcast is live there will be a facebook group for all of you guys to mix and mingle and talk amongst yourselves and recommend movies and talk to us give us feedback um come join the club mm-hmm. hang out with other like-minded or not like-minded individuals i don't know but if you all if you listen to this podcast then you have something in common and that's really what's important mm-hmm. put out each other's invisible fires mm-hmm. and rate us on itunes <laughs> <laughs> mad love bye